theology and the other a doctor of medicine. And whenever someone came to their house and asked the, uh, the, for the doctor, the maid would always reply, the one who preaches or the one who practices. And there is a point to that, that while we may not know the theory of Christian living, there, is some, uh, there comes a time when we must put it into practice. Amen? Last week we started in the book of Revelations, and uh, I uh, confess that I have not preached too many times from the book of Revelations. And tonight, last week, uh, just nerves and all, we're going to redeem ourselves. This is going to be a good uh, lesson in the book of Revelations. Kids, you can go on back as you're already doing since I forgot. All right. Good deal. Okay. Um, but we've been in the book of Revelation, and uh, also if you want to relocate, if you kind of got a back seat, but you like to be closer, or if you're comfortable where you're at, that's fine. I'm not telling anybody they have to move, but now that the kids are gone, you have an opportunity here. So, you know, actually before I get into that, there's something that I was kind of sensing while we were singing that song, and that happens to be one of my favorite songs right now, Good, Good Father. Um, I was reading an article that was geared towards dads with daughters and, and some challenges, and you know... My mind, as uh, Lily was laying, I can't hardly get her to stand up during worship service. She's five, and she wants to just lay down. But, um, you know, I was reading this article, and it talked about uh, they asked the question to my fathers, what do you wish you'd done different? Guys that had their daughters are grown. And there was a laundry list of things, but a lot of them had the same kind of thread is, is encouraging them more and uh, lifting them up and, and talking to them about how God sees them and tell them how beautiful they are and, the things that they would tell them more often. And, you know, um, while our sons may be different, you know, kids in general, one challenge I just give to you men that have kids, those that plan to have children, look, um, there's, one, there's no two ways about it. If you don't follow God's way with your kids, you're going to have regrets. And the only person that really pays for that besides them is you. And you don't want that. And I could tell you there's sometimes, Jennifer and I mentioned, we, we've started to kind of keep each other in check that if one of us starts barking like a chihuahua at the kids, that one of us stops and says, hey. And you know, you have to be a big man to let, let you know, uh, your wife or the kids say, you know, hey, you, you seem to be something's wrong there and I don't think it's me. And do it respectfully, but um, it's been really good for our home. And I'm just going to tell you, you know, Scripture is clear. We're not to lord over our families. We're not. We're supposed to be a partner or spouse, and we're supposed to be very careful with our words and how we use them. And, and uh, you know, there's just been some times in the last few months I've caught myself getting really hard on my boys especially, and I'm just sharing that with you. Hopefully it encourages someone else. We are literally shaping them with our words. And the scripture talks about being powerful. And so I'm just going to challenge you, man. Be very careful. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to build them up. We're not supposed to be telling them, hey, you're better than everybody else. Just both tell them how special they are in God's eyes and your your eyes. And teach them to be humble, but yet build them up. And we just have to be careful. I tend to want to be a a harder disciplinarian. And, uh, you know, it's not all so bad if you you have more balance of building them up than tearing them down or or, or, uh, chastising them. So for whatever that's worth, I just felt it during the, the worship service. It was on my heart, so I'm just sharing that in case that hits somebody else. So, um so anyway, back to Revelation. So um, this, this idea of applying, uh, putting into practice what we're learning from God's word. You know, whether you come here for a short time, a long time, whether you like me as a, a person or a pastor or none of the above or whatever your feelings are towards me, the truth of the matter is, is the time that Jesus returns is coming sooner and sooner, more near and more near. I can feel it. I can sense it the way the world's going Things are happening, uh, even the way the church as a whole is behaving. Uh, I've been talking to some other ministers of different churches, some very traditional, uh, some very uh, radical, and others. And you know, a very common thread has been happening in all churches. You know, you may think if you've been coming here for a while that we just have kind of the corner of the market that, you know, we're ministering guys in jail, people are coming with different addictions, they're being set free. And you think, wow, that's something special about New Song. Let me tell you something. Actually, there are a lot of pastors reporting that that's happening. And you know, the Bible talks about in the final days that God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh and that we're going to see these, these uh, mighty things happen because God's trying to, to draw those in who will have that chance to accept him. So um, my challenge to you is 
Don't ignore what God is doing. And, and when we take these lessons and we learn something from God's scripture, let it saturate, let it set in. Meditate on it. Um, I know I speak fast and I'm trying to slow down because I would encourage you to try to take notes where you can. If you get one tidbit from God's word that you can mill over and God can illuminate to you, it's uh, well worth your effort. The Apostle John tells us in the blessing, in our reference tonight, we're going to spend most of our time Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. The Apostle John tells us in the blessing, Blessed is he who reads and who's, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. That's Revelation 1.3. With this clearly in view, let's take a look at what the Apostle John continues to say as he sees Jesus Christ in heaven. I'm going to read to you uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that, that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to uh, Pergamum, to uh, Thyatira, to Sardius, to Phil- uh, Philadelphia, to uh, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, what was it? On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And there in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like uh, burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are, uh, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So as a refresher, and if you guys want to put up the, uh, start with those photos, um, as a refresher, the island of uh, Patmos, it was um, a small barren island located in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Italy. It was one of the main island penitentiaries of the Roman Empire. Today we had uh, compare it to like Alcatraz off the cal- coast of California in the San Francisco Bay where really bad guys were sent. This picture here is the only sandy beach at, that, um, at the island. So it's not a, a luxurious place to be. Um, it was uh, selected for that penitentiary. I'll come up on a couple more photos here. Um, there's a monastery there today. Um, here in a moment, there's going to be some of the structures still left. This is where um, one of the gods uh, that was worshipped, uh, they likely said there's a, there was a temple there. Um, and then this is where um, almost like your Justice Hall was. Uh, but John was uh, staying in a cave, but we also know it seems from Scripture that he was, uh, seemed to be free to roam the island as well. Uh, here are some areas that have been kind of dedicated that they have uh, decided or... Uh, uh, seem to think they figured out is where John was. Um, and then some of the last slides here in a minute. Uh, I just threw in a couple of Alcatraz, kind of give you the idea. It was a, a similar idea. There's Alcatraz, where many prisoners were kept. But the Apostle John was in his 80s when they sent him there. Can you imagine? I mean, some of us probably have family members or relatives that are at that age. Imagine your 80s being sent to a place like that. And it was believed that the, in the book of Revelation was written about 95 or 96 A.D. 
And the emperor, uh, Dominion, or Dimension, sent John there to punish him because of his preaching of the gospel. John says in Revelation 1.9, John says, he was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it was intended to punish and isolate him, putting him where he would be able to continue to preach, where he would, wouldn't be able to continue to preach the gospel. He was separated from the churches. It's a great example of how the devil tries to use circumstances to discourage, to punish. I talk a lot about how the devil wants to isolate us. It's one of the things he's trying very hard to keep people from the body of Christ, from church, to isolate us and put us in a place where we feel unable to continue with God's calling upon our lives. And this should be nothing new to believers. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, in John 16, 33. It, it mentions John and, and puts John in the light of our companion. It says, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. So while John is an apostle and an elder of the church, he sees himself as one of the guys that is a brother in the Lord uh, and believers, whether rich or poor, male or female, Jew or Gentile, are one family. We're all children of God. Um, with the same hopes and inheritance. So John also identifies with the believer's suffering, and he shares the same types of difficulties and afflictions and temptations, and we all, uh, we all do for the kingdom of God, which is achieving through patient endurance. So John is no different than you or I in the fact that he was set out to try to do what he felt like he should do for God, and he ends up in this terrible place at the ripe old age of 80, um, where he's being punished for spreading the gospel. And that's what we need, patience and endurance. The question is, isn't why me, which we often uh, ask when we're in times of trouble, but rather it's more like, why not me? Why not me? Instead of why me, why not me? John understood that we all go through times of tribulation when we follow our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. John was actually doing hard time because of it, and so like John, we need to, be, we need to patiently endure. I put a, a video, for those of you that are on Facebook, I put a video a while back by a, a well-known uh, Navy SEAL commander, uh, goes by the name of Jocko, uh, has a very uh, prestigious career in the service, and uh, one of the bits of advice he gave to a lot of his guys and uh, was the purpose of this video was his response to most things was good. If you say, hey, I didn't get that promotion, good. Gives you more time to get better at what you're doing now. Um, oh, we don't have the right equipment. Good. You're going to learn to adapt and get better without it. Oh, uh, I got injured. Good. Maybe you need time to rest anyway. And it's good time out. You know? Um, you know, you could go down the list of things and his response is just good. And that's, that's kind of what we see in, in John here is because he's in this bad situation, but he, it's not a question of why me, it's kind of like why not me. I mean, we already know that what they did to Jesus for, for spreading truth and uh, the truth of God, and so he sees it as just part of doing that business. John found himself doing time because he refused to compromise his faith and the testimony of Jesus Christ which is no different than all who follow Jesus and are willing to accept persecution because of it. It's sometimes a true test of whether we really are absorbing what we are learning from the Word of God and applying it or not, because when the pressure's on, it shows whether you truly believe that God is your Savior, whether here and with life or through death and, and promoting on to heaven, but if you truly believe what you say. Analogy I've used often that I borrowed from Pastor Roger that was here before me is it's like a tube of toothpaste. You get up in the morning, you squeeze your tube of toothpaste. What do you expect to come out? Toothpaste. But what if mud came out? You'd be calling that company. You'd be filing a claim, right? And then you'd be on one of those commercials. It's my money and I want it now. But, you know, we expect to come out. But that's truly how we are as believers. Sometimes what we fill ourselves with, we look good on the outside. You know, the outside of the wrapper says Christian. It says what, what people would expect it to say. But when the pressure's on and you squeeze it, what comes out shows what's really on the inside. 
I, you know, I joke all the time about the road rage, but I use that example just to let you know that I have those struggles too. You have them too. Those times when pressure's on, what comes out shows what you're really filling yourself with. We see the same faithfulness from John's disciple, a disciple named Polycarp who was burned at the stake for refusing to recant his faith. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior now? Both the historic church as well as the church throughout the ages is filled with such testimonies of all those who are making the same choice, choosing death, rather than denying God and his word. It's happening in our day and time. This is one of the times you can see a glimpse in our current um, days that, that matches directly back to the history. We see it with ISIS across other lands. We see it in some of the terror that's happened here where, where people have been asked, are you a Christian? If you say yes, you, and given an opportunity to deny Christ or die, and people are dying for the gospel's sake. Even during the end time of tribulation, this is the testimony of the saints who refused to deny their faith. The Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelations 12, 11. You see, this is where I draw a lot of my strength because in my natural, if things get tough, I'm like, you know what? Used to. I don't need this. I'll go back to Walmart, you know? God, I didn't ask for this. Why me? Why am I dealing with this? I'll just go back. And, and like I said before, God had to work on me and say, you can't be doing that and be effective for me. You've got to get rid of your other options in your brain and just know that I will be there for you through thick and thin. I'll be there to carry you through. You know, it says they were beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the word of God. They refused to worship the Antichrist and receive his mark on their foreheads or on the back of their hands, uh, referenced in Revelation 24, speaking about end-time events. And then there's a time when we're reading that John was in the Spirit. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Revelation 1.10. This identification of the Lord's day, there's two separate uh, camps on the belief of what he's talking about there. Uh, because uh, we have believed, um, some have identified it as Sunday or the first day of the week. That was the day Jesus rose from the dead, which became the standard uh, time for believers to gather and worship the Lord, as opposed to the Jewish Sabbath outlined in the law. The only problem is that while it became the customary way of referring to Sunday by the church in the, in the second century, it's nowhere to be found in the Bible. So this is just something that we have believed for a time, that that was what it is, but, but it's not necessarily that day, and that's what some hold to. Others insist that it's a reference, what we're talking about is what John's going through here when he says on the day of the Lord. Others insist it's a reference to the day of the Lord, the time period known as the end time. So in, in, in basic sense, there's some that say that when John's saying in the day of the Lord, he's just talking about it was Sunday. Like we go to Sunday, we go to church. And others say that he's actually, in a way, being transported to the end times. He's receiving this vision by being forward in time, if you will, to the end times, and he's, he's seeing um, from that vantage point. They believe John was projected forward in the spirit to the future time period. So they believe the Lord's day is the same as the day of the Lord found the Bible. So let me just say that sometimes theologians get caught up in the minute details, and it doesn't really benefit believers as a whole sometimes for us to nitpick uh scripture to the point where we're uh we're we're losing the sense of what's being said there so let's uh just you know jesus even had that problem with the pharisees where they would nitpick things and then woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and you have neglected the the matters of the law justice and mercy and faith those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone in Matthew 23, 23. So this is a common problem that we have in dividing God's word. Goes, it goes back to uh, those times. So I like to bring some balance. Let's just say that whether it was on Sunday or whether he's being put into the day of the Lord at the end times, that either way, John is receiving basically a download, if you will, uh, of letters to be sent to the churches of that day. So 
the Spirit either took him forward to the future day or, or it was on Sunday or maybe both. But um, John was in the Spirit of the Lord's day. And it, and it doesn't mean John had a vision, but rather the Spirit carried him beyond his normal senses into a state where God could speak to him uh, with clarity and power. And, and that's not uh, out of line with other instances in Scripture where there's a few people that were, uh, if you will, teleported, <laughs> that, were, that were transferred from one place to another, that God would do the miraculous. So it was how the Lord reveals supernaturally what he desires to show his people through his people. And like he did for Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, when we hear the account of Ezekiel seeing the dead bones come back together with flesh and tendon and come back to life. So we've got that, that similar type of thing happening here. Further, John is being in the spirit on Patmos. It reveals that uh, it's not the environment around us that determines the work of God. Rather, it's the condition of our hearts, much like Paul and Silas experienced in the jail in Philippi when God rocked the prison because they were singing worship at night. So it doesn't matter where you're at. Some of us think because we work in a job where people are, are cursing God even and, and using all types of uh, anti-God language and, and uh, seem to want to just push our buttons that, that we're like, man, I just can't wait to get to a place where I can work with other Christians. But you see, that's not really how God works. He sometimes very intentionally puts us in those type of places that we're in in those times of difficulty, allows us to be there, knowing he has us in his hand, to accomplish his will. When you look at John, Paul, and Silas, and then think about how hard it is just to get people to come to church, no less be in the spirit when they get there, we can fully comprehend that our Lord, that our hearts are more attuned to the world than they are the Lord. I mean, look, I'm not going to try to step on any toes, but I've been there. You know, I was here at New Song before I was a pastor of New Song. And there's times, you know, you get up on Sunday mornings, and it's like, man, it's nice out. The lake would be nice. I filled my Saturday. I worked Monday through Friday. You know, i got to understand. I can have a spiritual experience out there on the water, right? And we laugh about it, but really, it is a difficult thing to even get people into the house of God, let alone be in the spirit when they're there. One challenge I've, always, I've given over and over is pray about the service before you get there, and that's I'm more assured that you'll receive what God is wanting to give you in that service. If you'll focus and pray on it, pray for me. You know how I get tongue-tied, so pray for me that I'll be able to speak clearly. And look what happened when this occurred on the Feast of Pentecost when they were all baptized by the Holy Spirit and filled and the church was born. How it all began. And so we need to come with a spirit of expectancy and anticipation for the Holy Spirit to move so we can fully live, move, and have our being in Him as it says in Acts 17.28. So are we in the Spirit? Uh, is the Holy Spirit having His way in our lives? Well, I've got a short video clip that is... Uh, now, I don't do this a whole lot, especially if it's a, a reenactment of a Bible thing because you're generally going to get a guy with a British accent, you know, and he's not going to be the same skin tone of the people that he's depicting, but that's okay. I mean, I like reality stuff, but um, it's going to kind of give you an idea because... I get it that when you get in Revelation, I'm pouring a lot of stuff here and do it, and I'm already seeing a little bit of sleepiness. That's okay. So um, I'm going to show you, and this just depicts John's moment in the prison, uh, in the on the island, in the prison, in his cave, uh, and then this experience when he goes into the spirit.
blood was running from his hands, his feet, and his side. And his breathing so suffered, I could not bear to listen to it. It was very cold, and a strange wind came up. And his mother took a veil to shield herself. But she stayed. She would have stayed until the end of time. And then, before Jesus died, he opened his eyes and looked at her and said, Mother, do not cry. And then, and then, he said to her, Mother, this is your son. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore, and have power over death and hell. Write the things I will show you. They are messages for all churches. Come, I will show you things which must be hereafter. Entered the door of heaven.
There were 24 old men. So John turned, says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice of his, as of a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, Revelations 1, 10 through 12. What's interesting is John said he saw one like the Son of Man. In other words, it wasn't like John had seen him before. It was Jesus, but he had seen him. It was different than he had seen him both as he remembered him on earth before his transformed state and then before he ascended. Here's a point. John would never have seen Jesus in this way if he hadn't turned. Um, It was only when John turned, and it's only when we turn that it's when we repent. John was in a moment where we, we we can see a moment where he turns, he sees Jesus, and he's fearful and he falls down as if dead in front of him if the world has our attention if our heart is set on things of this world and it's voices of philosophy or science or psychology then we'll never truly hear god's voice nor see his glory john was tuned into his voice he had heard him as he uh, walked here on earth he'd heard him before he ascended and so he recognized his voice This brings importance to us of learning God's voice. You say, well, what do you mean by that? uh, I've never heard an audible voice. Are you saying I should hear that? No, God doesn't often speak in an audible voice, but through his word and learning uh, and, and studying his word, you begin to hear his voice. You begin to learn what his voice sounds like by being obedient to the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Revelation 2, 7, 11, and 29. Jesus' voice is like the sound of many rushing waters. I've never been uh, to uh, Niagara Falls, but I've heard from those that do that when you stand there close to the falls, you can't hear anybody even if they're shouting. And, you know, I can believe that because we lived for quite a while, 10 years in Bella Vista, and we lived really close to Tanyard Creek. There's a waterfall back there. And we get so much rain that would be flooding everywhere, even though golf courses, that uh, waterfall would be so loud that if you're standing near there, you couldn't hear anyone, even if they're shouting next to your ear. And so um, the the prophet Jeremiah said that the Lord will roar on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and the roar mightily against his land. The sound of his voice will be heard throughout the earth in Jeremiah 25, 30, and 31. There's times in our lives when we are uh, head down a path not of just direct disobedience to God that we're just making our mind up, I'm going to turn from God, but our choices of the things we listen to, the things we do, the places we go, the decisions we make about um, how engaged we are in the body of Christ, those are times when we need to turn towards God because the enemy is trying very hard to get us turned in the opposite direction. He's trying to, to get our attention. We need to turn and allow God's voice and God's word to drown out the voices of this world. The voice of our own flesh, not to mention Satan's voice. There's times I can get pretty discouraged and if I, if I keep listening to those voices, the discouragement, the you can't do that, the fear of what if you fail or, or what if people uh, come against you and, and you listen to that, then, then Satan is having his way. We have to turn and listen for the voice of God. And when John turns, he sees Christ as he has never seen him before. His hair was extremely white. His face shined like the sun in full strength. His eyes burned a fire. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His words were like the sound of many waters. And along with this, John saw Jesus wearing the robes of authority. He was wearing robes that spelled out priest, king, and judge. And his feet were of refined brass, it says. The Son of Man is a title for the Messiah. And although Jesus appeared like what John remembered when he was transfigured before him on the Mount of Transfiguration, now he was different. Now he is in a glorified form. And, he, and probably was what the prophet Daniel saw when he saw Jesus going up to the Father described as the Ancient of Days. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9-10, through 10, it says, The Ancient of Days was seated. His garments were white as snow. 
and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. And this is a picture of the Father from whom one like the Son of Man came before, coming in the clouds of heaven. So you've got two different authors. You've got two different, given that same description of seeing Jesus in that glorified form. And it says, and he was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, and all peoples and all nations will service him, and his kingdom and dominion will be forever. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So what we see is a picture that looks a lot like the Father, but it really doesn't bother me that we're saying it's Jesus because, again, in John 14, 9, it says, if you've seen me, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we very much see uh, the glory of God uh, being represented through his son Jesus in this moment. Most commentaries, like I said, they get up, caught up in his appearance, um, but in short, they reveal the three aspects or positions that Jesus holds, the king, the high priest, the judge. If you go online and you start trying to research what Jesus looked like, um, you know, whether it's earthly days, whatever, you'll get a, a plethora of people's opinions. Um, but but there, there's these two descriptions we have from two different authors. It says uh, the white hair, pure, uh, representing purity and holiness, uh, Jesus making our sins as white as snow. And then we have the eyes of fire, which is discernment and judgment. The fire known to be a purifier. Uh, and the Father has given all judgment over to Jesus, it says in John 5.22. And then we have the long robe and the golden uh, girdle, if you will, uh, signifying in that time dignity and royalty, worn by a high priest or kings and judges. And then the, the feet appearing as brass, which is a, a reference to judgment. The altar of sacrifice was brass. And then the mouth is as sharp as a two-edged sword. And God's word is our weapon. And there, it's a, a long sword for thrusting. It truly divides the soul and spirit. But when Jesus returns, it will strike and bring judgment. And we have to be very careful that when we're using the word of God, that we're being led by the Holy Spirit because it is a very sharp sword. And there's a lot of people who are trying to use it to get their own point across. And they're starting their own wars with it which won't serve them well and won't serve the kingdom well because they're using it as a, as a weapon for their own glory. Then we have face as bright as the sun. And I could, you know, we could spend a whole sermon on each of these, and, um, but I'd like to say with his countenance because I'd like to stay with that because it's when John saw this vision of Jesus, he hit the ground as if he were dead. I don't know uh, your experiences in, in, with God, but I do remember a time when um, I experienced the presence of God and it knocked me down completely. I mean, I, I, haven't, I don't talk about that a lot, but I was just a teenager and um, I was praying very earnestly. I wanted to know, God, are you real? I w didn't want to leave that place till I knew he was real. And uh, next thing I know, when I opened my eyes, I was on the ground. Never felt myself hit the ground, but I was there. But... With John, it's the same brilliance that caused Peter, James, and John to hit the ground on their faces at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see a lot of parallels here about when people experience the true glory, the transfigured Jesus, um, that it drives them down uh, to the ground. Same thing with the blinded Paul, who is Saul, sending him likewise to the ground. It, it's any wonder that when John saw the glorified Jesus that he fell uh, at his feet as though dead. We see it in many other references. John probably thought he was dead given the experience of others who saw the face of God. I mean, you've got to remember oral, oral tradition. So uh, there was a time when there wasn't written scriptures, but it was passed down orally. And there had to be uh, those who, who practiced and got it exactly right. They're very fearful of changing anything about God's word, and so it was passed down orally. So, you know, even John would have this fear of, Hey, if I actually see God, it may be the end of me here. But others who saw the Lord thought the same thing. Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson, saw the angel of the Lord uh, or Jesus Christ and said, we shall surely die because we've seen God in Judges 13, 22. Or what about when Jacob wrestled with God and he called the name of, uh, uh, called the, name of the place 
uh, Peniel, which, which um, he said, I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. But basically saying, whew, I can't believe I made it. I saw God and I made it. You see, the idea is that humans can't see God in all his glory without something changing in us because of our sinful nature. So um, God said in Exodus 33:20, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. But Jesus said to John not to fear because the keys of death and hell are now under his authority and control. And Jesus got them from Satan after uh, his death and resurrection. So in this instance, him, he's seeing Jesus, but Jesus has now, remember the, the, the curtain had been rent in two. Uh, we're able to go into the presence of God. There's no longer a holy of holies that only a priest can go. And so it's because of Jesus being able to have the keys to death, hell, and the grave that John's able to see him and survive this. If you're fearful or anxious in any way, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus touches John, telling him not to fear. And what this tells me is that the greatest cure for our fears and anxieties is the personal presence and touch of Jesus Christ. In other words, you come to church week after week, or maybe you've tried different churches, whatever your case, but you come and let me ask you, are you leaving different than you came? In other words, is there anything different about the moment you came? And I'm not saying that it's only in a church building that you can experience God. But if anything, when you're in the presence of other people coming together, what the scripture says about where two or more are gathered, and we know that when we're worshiping God, that his presence is there. Are you leaving any different than you came? I mean, we could play the game, blame game. Well, if the preacher was better, maybe I would. If, if worship was this way, or if this, or if it had this, or whatever, we can, we can blame a lot of things. We can be uh, letting ourselves be distracted with things of the world, uh, just uh, shutting out God's word. But are you leaving different than you came? John here is told to write down what he is told and what he has seen to the seven churches that are in Asia. Many have debated just what these seven churches represent. The number seven would indicate these are representative of the church with the Lord Jesus Christ being the head. And therefore, they talk about it being the seven ages of the church. Um, we see it as Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, uh, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. But the problem with such a division is that, that we see in history parts of one church age bleeding into another or uh, found early or later on. This leads us to the second possibility of an answer, which is that these represent Christ's church throughout the ages. And those characteristics are seen in the church today. So in other words, uh, you know, some would say, well, it was just for the seven churches there that John was familiar with. But others would say, no, this is actually, he's getting a download to be sent out to the churches, but it's a message that is supposed to transcend not just those physical churches, but every church to come. That those were just representative of the churches that would come beyond those. And that's a message that goes on and on for the churches. And if we believe what the scripture tells us about it being inspired and that every part of it is good for teaching and correcting and admonishing and, and so on, then, then we would have to believe that that's true, that that's what this represents. I, but I've talked about not getting caught up in the minute details and uh, there has to be a balance. And since we're not told exactly what these represent, only that there are churches in Asia at the time of this writing, then let me give you my view of this. And that is that they represent the church from its inception until now. That God was not going to give a word that he was going to have inspired written down in the scriptures that was going to last for all this time if they weren't for us too. That there would be no purpose in that of it being written down for us to read and just ignore because it only applied to them. So John is introduced to, to, to them as Jesus is standing into the, in the middle of these seven golden lampstands that John identifies as the seven churches in Revelation 1.20. And the lampstands are not the light. You see, here's the interesting thing about this, um, this vision that he's having, that he's witnessing, is these seven lampstands, the churches are not the light. Jesus is the light. You see, there has to be oil supplied to that lampstand for it to burn. 
And so we're literally seeing a, an example of what we see through other parts of Scripture where there's an anointing, the oil of anointing that comes in and it's ignited through the lampstand, the, the church, and the light that produced, that shines out is Jesus. So we don't need to be so tied up in the fact that the churches have problems. Yes, we need to be about trying to live more like Christ and, and to correct those problems, but we need to understand that the lampstand is not the light that people are seeing. It's only when Jesus is shining through us. Our focus has to be on drawing closer to Jesus as knowing who he is, uh, understanding his voice. And then that light is what shines others. You see, a lot of us are trying to go out and witness to friends or tell people about the gospel, and we're trying to treat it as a textbook lesson. Here, if I just tell you, and once you understand, and, and then you'll just believe because you're reading it. And you get it. But what happens is, is that person, maybe they're not spending time with Jesus every day, so they don't have any real relationship going with him. And so... There's a lot of head knowledge going on, but where's the bright light shining? You see, that's where sometimes we get caught up where we tell people we believe he's alive and everything, but we treat him as if he's just a fairy tale. We tell others about it because, hey, that will fix the world or that will fix my family or whatever, but it's not good enough for me to break off from my busy schedule to put him first in everything to actually have a daily relationship with him. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When Jesus left the world, when Jesus left the world, the world was thrown into spiritual darkness. But Jesus didn't leave the world without light, in which is why he is in the midst of the church. He is the light that shines through the church. And he left the Holy Spirit. He said the comfort would come, and the Holy Spirit was to bring the oil into the church that would, that would, would be the fuel that would ignite that light. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see, we need the Holy Spirit at work in the churches today if that light is going to shine outside of the walls. There's so much debate about who the Holy Spirit is and how he works that churches are, are still debating that after centuries and centuries. They get tied up on that, and they're like, oh, it's just all about Jesus. Well, they're ignoring a key component to the light shining. And that was what was referenced as that oil, the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming in. You see, we want to make it more about a doctrinal difference or, a, or you know, when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't know about that speaking in tongues. I know what it says in Scripture, but that, that ended. Well, where do you find that? I know what some will say about talks about some things will, will, will cease. But let me tell you something from a guy who's experienced it personally and continues to experience it. It's not ceased. And what it produces in your life is necessary for that light to shine brightly. A lot of people will differ and say, oh, Pastor CJ, are you going down the road saying that that's necessary for me to be saved? No, I'm not. Again, I don't want to just be redundant, but I keep drawing us back to what happened after Jesus was crucified with those who followed him. Where were they at? What were they doing? Look at the accounts. Look at the 40 days after his death when he is appearing. Look what was happening. Guess where he was having to go find them? In their hiding places. Why were they hiding out? Because they just saw him killed. They didn't even believe when they saw he was alive. They were not wanting that it happened to them what, what happened to him because of what he had taught them and what they were living. But when the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in other tongues, then that's where we see the accounts start to change. That they were going out of their hiding places, boldly, even under their deaths. I mean, John's not, not just, uh, he's not here on, you know, Medicare uh, program at the, at the local nursing home on Patmos Island, you know, because I'm 80 and that's just what you do when you're 80. He's there because he refused to compromise because he had the power of the Holy Spirit on him. And it talks about that he was in the Spirit when he received this revelation. You want to hear God's voice? You want to know what he's saying? You want to be directed by him to where you can walk into a place and you hear something and say, go to that person and tell them about me. And they come to know Jesus and God lights them up. You want that to be happening on a regular basis? You got to get full of the Holy Spirit.
Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 The responsibility of Christians and the church is to let a lost world see the light of God's glory. Christ is seen in the midst of his church. Jesus said in Matthew 18.20 For where there are two or three gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Part of our problem is, is that, you know, it's great we have a prayer time where we come up and there's two and you come and you bring your prayer requests. But let me tell you what will make God even happier is during the week when you call up a brother or sister in Christ and said, let's get another person on the phone and let's get another person on the phone and let's call it down from heaven. Let's pray through this. The church is losing that kind of drive where it, they're saving it up for Sunday. That's my time to get everything on the table for God. If you're not doing it during the week, then where's your step of faith? Because here it's easy. You're listening to a preacher uh, talk about the Word of God. You're worshiping and nobody's bothering us or hassling for us. We're watching a neat little video where a British guy depicts John. We've got all this going on and that's great. But tomorrow when you go to work and you're doing the mundane... And you go to lunch and you, you know, Taco Bell's running the specials right now, you know, and you do this, and you do that. But tomorrow night you go to your family and, oh, I'm tired. And you start complaining about the day and the people and that. Where is the Holy Spirit at work in you in those times? This isn't about condemnation. This isn't about you feeling bad leaving here. What I'm saying is you have a hope that just like John, what he received from God, even in that worst place possible in exile on their Alcatraz, at 80 years old, with no one to care for him, that God was able to speak something into his life that wasn't just for John, but today, so a thousand years later, on a Wednesday night in northwest Arkansas, in a little tin can of a church, those words that God gave him are powerful enough to change every life in here. Now, while the inspired scripture is already written and there's nothing being added, God is writing your story every day. And what you do tomorrow will greatly affect what happens on Friday. And what you do on Friday will greatly impact what happens to you on Saturday. And what those three days, how you use them, what you do with them will greatly impact what happens with you on Sunday when you walk in here. Because if you're living your life, treating your, your relationship with Jesus as a Sunday and a Wednesday thing or whenever the church gets together, then you're missing the point. If we're going to see Jesus, we can't divorce him from the church. When we do, we're literally cutting off the church's head. The Apostle Paul said that the Father not only put all things under Jesus' feet in Psalms 8, 6, but he also places Jesus over all things, making him the head over the church, Ephesians 1, In other words, he's a feet in the head. He's how we get where we're going, and he's who tells us what we need to be doing. He's the thinker and the driver. And so while your relationship with Jesus can't be all about Sundays and Wednesdays, you can't miss Sundays and Wednesdays or the others. You can't make that as a byproduct or just when I can make it or when it's convenient or as long as there's not something else pressing or I've got to do this or I've got to do that. When you do that, you're trying to divorce Jesus from the church. You're saying that it's not important either. With Christ as the head of the church, the church is God's design, which is what we see in these letters. Seven is the number of God. God has ordained the church, and that is, it, it is divinely inspired. Far too many are dismiss, dismissing the church today because it doesn't fit their idea of what it should be. But the church isn't their idea. Rather, it's God's, and it's his to direct, not men. So you may not like what may happen in the church. You may not like what the church doesn't have or what they do have, but it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God what the church is to be. I've read so many articles lately from believers and former believers about, um, oh, the titles are, I, I put a few of them down, of ones I've read, How I Found God Without the Church, Why It's Okay Not to Go to Church, Why I Left the Church, What's Wrong with the Church, Why God Doesn't Require You to Go to Church, What the Church Did to Turn Me Against It, and so on, and so on, and so on. Believers who are leaving the church because it doesn't do it for them anymore. Believers who want to believe that because the church is broken, it's not necessary for the Christian walk. 
And then former believers blaming their rejection of God on the faults of the church. But it's God's way and method for discipleship. And it isn't up to them to determine what it should or shouldn't be. It's God's. I'm not excusing churches from steering away from God's uh, word and, and teaching it and preaching it and doing something other than the gospel. I'm not excusing that. But I'm saying when we nitpick, here's the thing. You'll nitpick a church. You'll get upset. You'll leave there. If you land at another church, you'll do it there too. And if you land at another church, you'll do it there too. And you know what? It will maybe take you a long time. Hopefully, eventually, you'll get it. But maybe there's something with me. Maybe there's something in my spirit. Maybe there's something in the way I am behaving. Maybe I'm not letting the Holy Spirit get a hold of me. Maybe I'm rejecting what others think I, I need in my life or I'm rejecting wisdom or other ones that are trying to sow into my life. And so I keep repeating the same thing over and over and over again, thinking it's always someone else. And that's what we spoke about recently, about taking responsibility for our own surroundings. What's happening is they basically said, when they do that, we have no need of you, and they divorce themselves from the body of Christ. Quick note as to the stars in Jesus' right hand, they were identified as the angels of the churches. The word in the Greek means messengers. And while heavenly angels are always a possibility, the meaning may more apply uh, or be fit to leaders in the church, these seven stars. It, and it signifies Jesus holding them. The fact that he's holding them in his right hand uh, maybe denotes that they are protected and are under his sovereign control. I've seen some interesting things happen since I've become pastor, and uh, I'm fortunate my dad, who is my pastor, comes here, and then I live next to him, so I get to go over and have great conversations about it. But, you know, I told him, I said, you know, it's not that it gets easier as you go on, but sometimes, you know, you may call it thick skin or whatever, um, things, some things don't bother you more just because, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I've seen times where I know God is not defending me. He's defending the office of pastor. In other words, it could be me or some other pastor or any other guy that God's called to be a pastor. In that, and if someone comes against that office of pastor, God has ordained that for the church to be the shepherd of the church as Jesus is our shepherd. And so when someone comes against them and they're in the wrong, Jesus defends that office. I've even seen it when the pastor is maybe got some wrong too. But, but God deals with him separately. Jesus ends by telling John to write a three-part book. First, Jesus tells John to write the things that he's seen, which is what we're concluding today or chapter one and second he's told to write the things that are the things uh, of the church which is what we'll look at next week or chapters two and three and then third and then he's told to write the things that are going to happen afterwards or the major part of the book of revelation um, those things pertaining to the end of days and jesus as revealed here is a picture of our lord as he walks amongst his church and cleanses it of syphilis he walks in his royal garments with these glowing attributes and all the creation will bow. You know, here's the thing. Here's another, uh, another lesson that we should get from this is remember the Jewish people were hoping for a Messiah who would come physically onto the planet and kick the tail of the Romans right where they deserved it. And then the Jewish people would be the ones with them in captivity, right? They wanted street justice, you know, in a sense, and that's the Messiah they want. And they were sorely disappointed to think that Jesus was one that was going to come and be crucified and they're going to have to wait because it was his kingdom in heaven that was going to eventually rule the earth. And so the lesson in this is many times we think we've got it figured out about what God needs to do in our life or how he's going to save us from our problems or how he's going to get other people to start doing what they need to do so they quit being a thorn in our flesh. But the truth of the matter is, just like the Jewish people of time, is it's not about our way of doing things. It's about his. Jesus is pictured here in the robes of a king, of a high priest, of a judge, of a perfect one. Not the ones that John saw in his lifetime on earth because the religious people were messed up, the kings were messed up, the judges even were messed up at times. But as a perfect king, a perfect high priest, so he is the one who is the strong leader that we've all wanted. Voting, 
campaign after campaign after campaign, election after election after election, the wearisome thing that we go through on this earth of trying to find that leader that's going to do what we think is right. And Jesus is our perfect picture of the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the perfect one. And a judge, someone who actually created justice, and the high priest who ministers to every, everything in our spirit that needs healed. So we have to look at this and give honor and praise where it's due, and that, that is that Jesus Christ who gives strength to the humble and humbles the proud, who forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And we have to let the light of Jesus Christ shine through us to this world. It's not about our light, it's about His light shining through us. It's about being willing to accept that anointing of the Holy Spirit, that oil to come in our lives. And how, how does it happen? Well, listen, you're not going to get it by putting your Bible time at the end of your reality show time. You're not going to get it by, by waiting till Sunday before you have a real down and, gritty, down and gritty conversation with God. When you'll give up that time of scrolling on your phone to get beside your bed on your knees and cry out to God and say, I need something to change. I'm so weary. I, I'm scrolling this, this Facebook. I'm scrolling these things, trying to get some approval, trying to get some acceptance, you know, putting the word of God out there like I'm, I'm some champion of it. But then in my own life, I'm lonely, I'm scared, and I'm frustrated. Listen, John wasn't trusted with this great revelation from God because he just happened to have a little bit of free time being on the island of Patmos. And so God finally had his attention. This is a man who walked with him, who talked with him, who knew his voice and walked in the spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to, Lord, not just tonight, but in this place, Lord, every service time and every home, Lord, that is represented here, we need your Holy Spirit to begin to break down walls, Lord, that are forming, walls that have already been put up. God, uh, bondage that, is, that has taken root, that the enemy has put there. Lord, even as believers, that we've, we've allowed ourselves to become so consumed with the things of this world that we couldn't recognize your Spirit trying to work in us if we tried. Lord, it's not our trying, but it's our surrender that will allow it to be. Whatever pride issues we have where we don't want anybody to know that we've been weak or we don't want anybody to know that we're not living like we've been saying we've li living or we're acting out like that tube of toothpaste. We've got a whole bunch of junk on the inside, but we're sure wearing the name of Christian on the outside. But we just happen to be fortunate that the pressure doesn't come on while we're at church. Help us, Lord. Not that we feel condemnation. That's not of you, but conviction that your Holy Spirit convicts us to, to be ready and be willing to let all that be wiped out of us, Lord, and, and be emptied as a vessel that your Spirit may fill us. Lord, that we'd have a Holy Spirit, not a rev revival, Lord, because revival is bringing back up something that's already been. But God, a revolution at New Song. That God, your Spirit would pour out so strongly, Lord, that word would spread to those outside these walls, that God, in the workplace, in our homes, that, God, you'd soften Father's hearts, that we'd be speaking life and, and the truth of your word into our homes and doing it with love and patience and kindness. And, God, for, for mothers to be uh, tenderhearted and, and to exemplify your spirit in the way that they respond to their families. And, God, let that revolution that's in the home and in the church spread to those who don't know you. And let it be because of your light shining, God. Jesus, that your light shining from our lampstand with the anointing of the Holy Spirit bring a harvest of souls into this church. And let it not stop there, but let us become disciples, Lord. Let us truly take what we've been sitting for many years absorbing and invest it into those who have not yet heard, who don't know, Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here the, tonight and you know we're, we're ending right about on time of when we normally end, and I wasn't watching the clock for that purpose, but 
Don't leave here tonight. If you need time at the altar, do not leave here tonight without taking it. I'm telling you, it's not just our church, but we run the risk that we're getting too proud to bow a knee and to spend time with the Lord when others might see us. And listen, it's like I teach my boys about accountability and about, about uh, honor and integrity. If you, if you can't do it in front of others when others are watching, you won't do it when no one's watching. If you can't do that, if you can't humble yourself before the Lord in front of others, you're not going to do it at home in your own time because nobody's watching. There's no accountability. There's nothing pushing you other than if you're listening to the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to dismiss officially, formally now, and just say that if you need time, and Ken, if you don't mind coming uh, to the piano for a moment, if you need time at these altars, I pray you'll take it tonight before you go. Love y'all. If I don't see you before men on Saturday, I'll see you Saturday. And the rest of you will see you on Sunday. Love you.